This week on Cinemaholics, we are traveling to hell and back with our review of Hellboy, a new R-rated adaptation of the monster-fighting comic book anti-hero now starring David Harbour. I really don't know what the timeline is for this film. Right, yeah. We also catch up on the latest stop-motion animation family film from Leica, Missing Link. I feel like there was something ironically a bit missing here. And plenty of other releases worth talking about, including High Life, Guava Island, Little, The Death of Dick Long, The Man Who Killed Don Quixote, and Breakthrough. I'm not happy to say that the trailer was legitimately holding back. All that and more is coming up on Cinemaholics. Welcome once again to Cinemaholics. He is a pop culture writer for Cinema Blend. He also reviews films for The Playlist, Cutprint Film, and of course, Cinemaholics.com. It is Will Ashen. Hey, John. How are you doing? I'm doing fine, Will. I've missed you this week. It's been a hectic week, and I'm glad to finally talk to you about some films. Yeah. I'm excited to hear about these films that you've seen, but go ahead. Continue to introduce yes, yourself. Yeah. Who am I, though? I am the author of the novel Killer Joy, a book about Pixar called Pixar Theory, and I write about film for Adam Tickets, Relevant Magazine, the young folks in Cinemaholics, I am John Agroni. You can find more episodes of Cinemaholics, as always, on adamtickets.com, as well as our full archive on cinemaholics.com. You can write into the show anytime by sending us an email, cinemaholicspodcast at gmail.com, send them our way. And if you'd like to support this podcast directly and become one of our monthly patrons, you can check out the links to that in the show notes. We're at patreon.com slash cinemaholics. For as low as $2 a month, you can help make sure Cinemaholics continues on, roars on, some would say, with all of the movie reviews we can handle week to week. And Will Ashen, we have so many reviews to handle this week. Yeah. We, we promise we're going to try to keep them not not really brief in the sense that they won't have substance, but we'll, we'll keep them, we'll keep it tight this week. We, we don't have a lot of extras, a lot of goodies, but I think we're going to have a lot of really great insights into some films. And the main reason for that, we'll, we'll get into, but let's, let's do our off topics, Will. We don't have a guest this week, it's just you and me. And yep. it's, been, it's been a while, hasn't it? I, I can't remember the last time you and it was just, just us. Um, I feel like it was literally us. <laughs> was that just like the us? On a, yeah. Uh, then we have this big spoiler thing for us and we had no guests and it was just yeah, the two of us. Yeah, you're right. You're right. I remember we wanted to have a guest and then things just didn't plan out, but yeah, yeah, yeah. That that was still a good discussion. So our, our kind of loosey goosey episode for April has come, right? So yeah. All right. So off topics this week, we have a new extra milestone coming out for those of you listening for the first time. If you haven't heard yet, extra milestone is our monthly bonus series where we celebrate a big film anniversary. And for the month of April, we are going to be having a full bonus episode about Seven Samurai, which came out in 1954. So it is celebrating its 65th anniversary we're going to be talking about that film with sam noland it's going to be terrific and if you are a patron of cinema hawks you're going to get that episode early uh, we're going to be we're planning no promises but light promise right the plan is to get that out this week uh, if yep. not extremely early next week and then all of you who are not patrons you'll be able to get access to that episode later in the month but Seven Samurai, I, I'm looking forward to rewatching this one. We mentioned last week that, Will, you're going to be seeing this one for the first time. Did you end up finding it at the library? Or are you going to maybe find it on Criterion? Do you have a plan yet? Yeah, actually, I have it. It's at the library waiting for me right now. I was going to pick it up between the uh, end of this recording and my shift at work. So probably in the next hour or so, I'm going to pick it up. Awesome. Awesome. We highly recommend uh, listeners of the show. Check out Seven Samurai this month and so you can watch along with us and join the conversation for that. But, well, you know, moving on to less, you know, classic, serious topics. 
we we have we have a bit of a a bit of a problem this week or not a problem yep. I should say we have an opportunity. Okay. Oh sure. Uh, listeners from last week know that we we had a bit of an icebreaker question for our guest Ryan Oliver from the playlist. We, we just wanted the listeners to get to know him because it was his first time on Cinemaholics. Everyone gets nervous, and we want to just sort of make him feel like he's at home, and that home being the Hogwarts house of Cinemaholics.com. So, unfortunately, Will, you've never taken the Pottermore quiz. To find out where your Hogwarts house is. For those of you who've never watched Harry Potter, Hogwarts is a magical school with houses that can sort of just define who you are to other people. So there's Gryffindor and Slytherin, Hufflepuff and uh, Ravenclaw. And, well, you know, we we sort of netted out last week that you were maybe you were in Gryffindor, but really you're the sorting hat. I think there there was a comment or two celebrating that idea. But uh, you you didn't have time to, to do your Pottermore quizzes this week. Is that is that right? Yeah, I didn't get to it. And I like to think the real reason is because I'm a nonconformist. I don't like to be fit into certain boxes. <laughs> but the real answer is I just didn't have the time for it. And I forgot and it slipped my mind. We did get an email from Alex, who's written into the show before. Alex specifically requested for Will to take the official quiz on Podmore.com and then reveal it on the show. So we're not going to be able to reveal it this week. But Alex and all of you other listeners who chimed in who who just want to know. They want to put Will into a box, and I don't blame them. Sure. I guess they just need <laughs> we, simple answers, and I guess that's what they'll give him. So that's right. For them, that's right. I, I will do it. Yes, and so we're going to reveal that next week, and next week's going to be a really cool episode. We're going to be doing our summer movie preview, which I know it's April. feels pretty early, but that's just... The cinema knows no seasons, really. We don't really do a spring movie preview because of that. It, it really yeah. is just sort of like March and half of April. So we're going to be going through our most anticipated summer movies. We have a couple of guests lined up for that. We're looking forward to it. It's going to be a blast. And we want you to let us know what summer movies you are most looking forward to in the comments of this episode on cinemaholics.com and why. Don't just tell us what you're looking forward to, but why you're looking forward to it. And I'm, I'm looking forward to answers that aren't just Detective Pikachu. So I feel like that's probably going to monopolize the conversation. You think so? so? I don't know. I'm just sort of guessing. More than Avengers? Well, that's obviously the big one, and, and I almost hesitate to consider Avengers, because I, I feel like we're not, we're going to do a, a kind of a baseline preview of that one, but it's not really, you know, it's not really, the it doesn't fit the spirit of summer movie preview. Really, what we want to yeah. do is enlighten movies, people who maybe they forgot are coming out in the summer or didn't even know, oh, this movie's coming out. That's, I feel like that's more of the fun of it, but who knows? Maybe, yeah. Uh, we'll see. It's going to be an interesting episode, because uh, we have our guests coming up, and I think we all have kind of eclectic taste. It'll yes. be fun to see uh, where we all turn around with this summer movie preview. So I'm excited. We won't be spoiling who's coming on because for all we know, they won't be able to. And then we just hate making promises we can't deliver. So, sure. But the guests we have in mind, I'm looking forward to it. I think, I think it'll be a great group of people. But okay, we have a couple of comments from last week to get to, as I sort of alluded to earlier. Uh, we we did have some solidarity. My Zero Academia is all about Will Ashen as the sorting hat. And uh, well, I think I think there is a, a user account called Will Ashen Sorting Hat who wants you to start grading movies like the Sorting Hat in Harry Potter. So uh, I just mm. have this comment here: better be C minus. So if you okay. can do that at least once this week, I think our listeners would like it. But that's up to oh, you. Oh, I see. So I have to like <laughs> say it like in that kind of style, or like this movie is like a Ravenclaw. I don't know if I quite understand the uh, question. I think I've- I think it's the grade. Now, if you were okay. really going all out, you would do a whole song like in the books. But I see, yeah. 
Yeah, where you're like rhyming everything, but I think that would probably be a little bit too much effort. And yeah, I'm, probably I'm not kill the quite, joke. I'm not Wayne Brady. I can't make a song up on the spot, but um, <laughs> that's a Who's Line is anyway reference for our younger audiences. But um, yeah, I, I'll see what I can do. All right. Uh, we also had a couple of comments. We had one from Corey who said, "Love Shazam and Corey? Pet Cemetery. Corey W. But I, I've seen Corey W. in the comments before. Who claims to not be Corey Woodruff? Oh, okay. Yes, there just seems to be a coincidence. But Corey W. said, "Love Shazam and Pet Cemetery. Unicorn Store sounds interesting. I guess not even Movie Pass could get me to see Best of Enemies. What do you think of that one, Will?" Um. Sorry, I was blanking on what, how I could differentiate Corey Woodruff from Corey W, and I was trying to think of what that W could be. So I was settling on Waluigi. So Corey Waluigi. Corey Waluigi. I hope I hope he changes or she changes their name for that. But um, yeah, so apparently Corey Corey has no interest in Best of Enemies, which kind of kind of aligns well with your review of that film from last week. But yeah, I will say unicorn store i did see some people give that movie a chance because of our episode and by and large the people who really liked it let me know that they liked it i have a feeling the people who did not like it they did not say anything to me i think out of just you know kindness and and understanding so yeah i mean they were like you know we'll let john have this one (laughs) we'll let him have his own unicorn store yes that's exactly it Uh, Eggsy said, I had a blast watching Shazam, but a kid started crying in my theater when the scary stuff started. I recommend kids eight and under maybe sit this one out, unless you know for sure your kid can handle extra spooky. Pet Cemetery, on the other hand, all ages, baby. I like that ending. Yeah. I There were like two kids in my Hellboy showing, and they had no reaction to anything. Oh, wow. They were like my the audience in my Hellboy showing, but by and like, large. They were just like, yeah. I didn't even know they were in there until like the credits were rolling. I was like, oh, there were two kids in here. I'm surprised they, didn't have, they had literally zero reaction to like anything that happened on screen. Oh, well, we'll but, get to Hellboy in a moment. Yeah, uh, sorry, last comment, though. Uh, no, it's it's a nice little tease. Uh, Gina G said, Pet Cemetery bored me to tears. It wanted so badly to be hereditary, like Ryan said, but it's just your standard jump scare flick with what appeared to be an unfinished ending. I love the, the first two that. films. Yeah, I love the first two films and am a big King fan, but this one isn't it. Which, yeah, that's kind of how I feel, honestly. But that uh, you can revisit that episode from last week if you want to know our full thoughts on Pet Cemetery Shazam and all the other films we talked about. This week, we have so much to get to. So without any further ado, let's talk about Hellboy. Hellboy, although, you know, the funny thing is, this isn't the biggest movie of the week if you count theaters. And that's probably because it's an R-rated film. But mm-hmm. it's, it's coming R-rated. out. Yes, extremely so. It's, it's coming out in 3,300 theaters but missing link which we'll do after this is out in 3400 theaters yeah. which makes sense family film which uh, apparently that only had a 5.8 million opening which is not good hellboy yeah uh, no no for... i heard uh missing link had a 5.8 million ah. or that was what was projected to be based on its low thursday score so um i don't know i just know it's apparently not doing too well especially considering how many theaters it went to not... missing link i mean so that's not, disappointing. yeah yeah. Neither of these films are doing super well. I actually have the box office right here, but uh, we'll we'll actually get to that in a little bit. Because um, I because I think you're right. I think it was projected to make ten million from its big opening, and I think it only made. It says here it only made one point six million on its first day. So yeah. that's not great. But let's talk about Hellboy. <laughs> sure. So I said this in my box office summary for Adam tickets. I I honestly 
don't it doesn't feel like to me it's been over a decade since the last Hellboy movie. And th- those were that was Hellboy the Golden Army. It was from Guillermo del Toro. He wrote and directed it. He also did the first Hellboy and what year was that? Like two thousand five, something like that? And two thousand four for the first <clears throat> Hellboy. Okay, okay. So it's been eleven years since Golden Army. And I don't know how your memory tracks with these films, but like I I remember people watch them. Like it, it, they feel like movies that I know people saw them. I know that people generally liked them, but they never felt like cultural phenomenons or anything. They just felt like nice. They felt like nice movies that people enjoyed for the most part, watched on cable and that sort of thing. I definitely really enjoyed them. I don't think that those films are necessarily underrated or anything like that, but I, I do like how they represent a certain period of time of the late 2000s when it came to comic book movies, because this was right before, not right before, but it was like right in the middle of the Nolan era. You know, it was when Dark Knight mm-hmm. had come out and it, it felt like superhero movies could go in any direction at this point. And we could really adapt like any source material into something that was pretty genuinely interesting. And that's why I really liked Hellboy the Golden Army because it was so different from Iron Man, Dark Knight, The Mummy, Tomb of the Dragon Emperor. Joking, obviously. But that, that was that was an exciting time, I think. Especially because it was a year before that we had like Spider-Man 3 and that wasn't so great. We had Fantastic Four, Rise of the Silver Surfer. And that felt like that kind of marked the end of the beginnings of comic book cinema that really kicked off with X-Men and Blade 2 and Spider-Man. And here we had Hellboy Golden Army, which was monsters and, and really good humor. Ron Perlman played the the character and really defined that role. Really great makeup, really expressive, especially compared to this new one. But mm-hmm. the their plans for a third Hellboy movie, which the second one teases, never came to fruition. Del Toro... Yeah got left the project Perlman left the project wasn't on great terms yeah yeah uh from what I heard and this is just rumors and speculation because I can't say for certain um Guillermo del Toro like went to definitively end the character like I guess essentially kill him off in the third film the creator of the comic hadn't done that like he hadn't really come to his ending for the character and his comic so he didn't want to rush that and I guess there was like this big back and forth between that um, I don't know why they couldn't have just killed the character off uh, in the movies and kept him alive in the comics, but neither here nor there. Apparently, there was a lot of scheduling issues. Also, the second movie didn't really do too well at the box office. So, no, yeah, I think not, it was yeah. just like t- – it was a lot of timing things. And I guess now uh, um, Ron Perlman, I guess, is just too old to really do the part considering how physical and uh, demanding it is both as far as the makeup process and the action. So well, and he, he, he backed out of his pro- own volition though. I've in a long time before this movie was in development. So I, yeah, I, I think thought, that's true, um, but I also think that he was more on del Toro's side with this. Yeah. I thought he was like kind of against the idea of it for a while. And then like he kind of turned face and was like, Oh, I actually really want to do this, but mm-hmm. I don't know if I'm just remembering that hastily or what, but I thought, there was at one point where he was like kind of indifferent towards it. And now, now he's like kind of bittersweet and like, I really wish we made that. I really wanted to end that story. So I don't know. Maybe I'm just making things up. But I do know now that he's like pretty much against this new film because he wanted to have a definitive closure to his trilogy for understandable reasons. And yeah. that never came to pass. He'll just have to settle for his fantastic beast, the Crimes of Grindelwald cameo as his, uh, his, his pivotal role in cinema, right? But... I didn't even know he was in that, but yeah. Didn't you see Crimes of Grindelwald? Don't you remember? I did, but I, I He's barely remember character- it. So. Okay, we won't even we won't relitigate <laughs> Fantastic Beasts. Sure. But anyway, 
Yeah, so I, I enjoy those movies. I've never read the Dark Horse comics, but they definitely were a lot darker, a lot more, they, they were gorier, kind of bloodier than the Del Toro movies, which were PG-13. And Yeah, I, kind of ironically. Yeah, yeah. and Del Toro, at least, yeah. Yeah, and so the, those films were made by Universal or distributed by Universal. These ones are being distributed by Lionsgate and Summit, and they definitely have a much different, darker direction. The tagline of this movie is, Give Evil Hell. Uh, the whole cast includes Sasha Lane, Mia Jovovich, Ian McShane, Thomas Hayden Church, Daniel Day Kim, Brian Gleason, a whole lot of other people. And the main heavy hitter himself is played by David Harbour. So remember David Harbour, of course, from Stranger Things. He plays the uh, the sheriff guy. And what you said was kind of interesting about maybe the third Hellboy could have been ahead of the comics kind of reminds me of the whole game of thrones thing at the moment because that right. show is ending before the books and so i kind of understand this idea of like before we really rush to an ending let's maybe start over and maybe I, that would be interesting if game of thrones did something like that they would never because that show is so successful but you know can mm-hmm. you imagine if they if they started over with a more extended series or they did something that was much much truer yeah. to george R. R. martin's books and that's kind of what the idea is here did you get that sense yeah, I guess you're kind of talking about like the Walking Dead approach because isn't there isn't there like Fear of the Walking Dead or yeah, something like that's, that? Yeah, that's more of like a spin-off, but yeah. And I don't think that really tracks with anything from those comics, but they do sort of like take things in a different direction for the sake of we have this other thing that can appease the fans who feel like the show has gone off the rails almost. Sure. But um anyway, what was the question? I apologize. I mean, that was the um, question. So okay. that, that was all. I was <laughs> I like, I, I, I missed something. I, well, I just felt like that's kind of what they were going for with this new Hellboy was they're, they're just sort of starting from scratch because when this movie kicks off, you know, it starts off kind of assuming, you know, this character. And one of the weird things yeah. it does from there is it completely redoes the origin. So it, it does show you the, the origins of everything, which I thought was a really weird editing decision. What, what did you take from... Yeah. Hellboy and the way that it it compares, I think, to those other movies. Well, I was talking about this actually with um, Chris, my co-host on A Ogre Toots Ogre. I really don't know what the timeline is for this film. Right. Yeah. Like, I don't I know it's kind of a reboot, kind of a a redo of the origin story. But like, I don't know the public's familiarity in this film with Hellboy. Like in the first film, if I remember correctly, I didn't get a chance to rewatch it. But I think it was like kind of like he was like a government secret. Right. In the first movie, at least until the end. Right. Like, yeah. People were not really aware of him. And then the second movie, they kind of knew about him. And but he was still kind of like a menace or people didn't really know how to react to him. This movie, like he's kind of like walking around and people don't like trust him or even know him. But no one's really seems like uh, like kind of people are like nonplussed about him. Not well, actually, I'm misusing that word. People are kind of um, nonchalant, like indifferent. Yeah. Nonchalant about him. So, um, yeah, I don't quite know exactly like where the public is with this character and like what the inverse like logic of it is like where like people stand. Cause like there's some crucial characters who are introduced, but they like kind of uh, have some like stark endings for other characters. So it's just kind of a weird turn of events in this film, as far as the um, logic and the like uh, familiarity with the source material from what yeah, I can gather. So what you're saying, yeah, they never really establish the timeline. They don't establish where Hellboy fits with the general public, I think is what you're saying. And they don't, yeah. they don't really establish like, you know, they kind of present him as the same character as the Witcher from those video games. I know you've never played them, but this Henry very Cavill? much feels inspired by the Witcher. What was that? Is it Henry Cavill playing uh, that character or that guy? 
Uh, I think Mads Mikkelsen played show? him at one point, and then yeah, there, there's some actor who's playing him in the Netflix series, but I don't remember if it was Cavill to be oh, honest. I think it's Cavill, but I, I don't know for sure. But anyway, it's somebody who I thought did not really look the part, but I'm holding my breath because a, a, a Witcher series could be tremendous, and I, I would have faith in Cavill to be honest. So uh, regardless, yeah. So this movie to me though felt th- this is weird to me in the sense that it felt like I had like 12 beginnings. Almost like if you look at all of the different <laughs> things that happen in this movie, like in the first act, they all feel like a bunch of comic book vignettes that any single one of them could have opened this movie. Mm-hmm. Did you get that sense? Like, without sort of giving away certain details, like there were just certain things that happened where I was like, oh, this is this feels like what they should have just done in the beginning of the movie. Oh, this does too. And then it does that other comic book thing where it introduces characters who sort of enter the scene to sort of spur the plot. And then we barely see them again. And and it was just, it it felt very comic book to me in like the worst way possible. I I don't know how you felt. Yeah. I mean, I kind of got that. I I feel like, I don't think the story itself is messy, but I feel like the vision of the film feels either kind of contrived or like uh, fractured because um, according to reports and, you know, this is all alleged, but, um, Neil Marshall, the director of the film, was feuding heavily with the producers. Um, and it seemed like neither of them really kind of got their say exactly. I guess the producers ultimately got final cut on the film, but um, nobody really like nobody really seems to be having fun making this movie. <laughs> Everyone seems kind of miserable while they're watching it. And maybe I just me presuming, but I, I just feels like when you watch the Guillermo movies, like, you know, I mean, I don't know how faithful they are to the comics and I, I can't really speak for the quality since it's been about 10 years since I've seen any of them. But I just feel like there's a lot more like creative energy, a lot more like fun, a lot more like inspiration to those films. And this feels like kind of obligatory in a way that shouldn't be like it's Hellboy. It's not like I mean, he's like well known because of the Guillermo del Toro movies, but he's not like a, like Superman or like a major comic character. You should kind of have some fun here. And it feels like they kind of they make up for personality by adding more language and violence i guess in lieu of that personality and it just it, it feels like a forced effort in a lot of different ways yeah yeah the the personality here there is some of it but yeah it feels forced there were maybe a handful of moments where i saw what they were going for and kind of connected i think there's a scene where hellboy takes on a few giants that i think visually is a lot of yeah, fun it's a lot of yeah it's, it's an interesting setup and it really sets up like how strong this character is yeah. in a way that Ironic. the movie really needed you to. Yeah. Ironically, it's only the second best giant fight scene I've seen at the cinema this year or this week. I mean, this week. So, yes. Are you going to yeah. talk about that other film this week on this show? I can't. Well, I don't know if I can say exactly, but because it would be a spoiler, but uh, I will uh, talk about that film. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, so it's little, <laughs> just kidding. Uh, <laughs> I actually believed you for a second. <laughs> um, yeah. So, it's funny that we mentioned Game of Thrones earlier because Neil Marshall, he directed a few episodes, uh, uh, some of the best episodes of Game of Thrones. He also directed The Descent, which is mm-hmm. one of my favorite horror films in the last decade. And so this film was also written by Andrew Cosby and Christopher Golden. So I- I'm confused a little bit, I guess, by th- they're doing the things that I think you should probably do for a Hellboy. But I've seen I've seen a lot of people notice that like this R rating, it, it it feels like the response to Deadpool that we all sort of feel feared when that movie was successful. Yeah. It was like, oh no, like we're going to get more comic book movies that are that have the R rating, but without really understanding what people liked about Deadpool. And that to me is really this Hellboy movie. It is, yes, it's it's gory and it's it's violent. And there is a little bit of a, 
satisfaction to be had with seeing something on the big screen that's so provocative, I guess. But it's just for the sake of it, and it never really... It feels never feels like it completes the film or adds anything to the film whatsoever, except for just mm-hmm. completely rote style. And I I had such a hard time caring about anything that was happening in this movie. This was I know we talked about exposition dumps kind of recently on this show through I think it was Pet Cemetery, but this movie makes Pet Cemetery look like, you know, an abstract art film in the sense that Every single scene, it felt like people were just spewing exposition in droves. And the worst thing about it is that most of it's coming from Ian McShane, who's one of the most talented actors in the UK, who is just... And a great voice. Absolutely. He is treated like just like he's reading his lines, it felt like, for the first time. And and yeah. it, it was so strange to me because you have a director who's normally really good about getting characters to convincingly invoke both terror and complicated world building. And I just, I don't know what happened here. Like there's not a single performance in this movie that I thought was impressive or nuanced. I I thought that Sasha Lane tries, but that accent is very distracting. Yeah. And David Harbour, he can't emote in that makeup. Uh, And his personality is like one of two options. I mean, at one point he's yelling and at the other point he's just sort of like just staring on. And it's just, to me, this movie was not effective at all in the ways that it needed to be. Yeah, I wasn't quite as critical on the performances themselves. I do agree with you that uh, poor Sasha Lane's accent probably wasn't the best choice. I really wish um, maybe a producer or Neil Marshall would would have just taken her side. It's like, we can we can lose this. I know I know your character is supposed to be British, but just trust me, it's fine if we can we can skip that accent. Uh, but I think her performance is her performance is fine. Otherwise, and I thought I didn't think any of the performances were bad necessarily. But I do agree with you that it doesn't feel like anybody's best work. And maybe that's going back to what I was saying earlier. It just feels like everyone's just kind of miserable making this movie. Maybe because of the production problems. Maybe just because, like you said, the makeup. I don't know what it is, but um, yeah, it just feels like nobody's really like like the thing about the R ratings. That's kind of supposed to be like liberating. It's supposed to be like, oh, we can swear, we can say crass jokes, we can have this explicit violence. But like you said, it feels like they're using that kind of in lieu of having a personality. It it just feels like they're kind of tacking that on as a way of differentiating from the PG-13 Hellboy movies that we've gotten thus far. So, I mean, yeah, you know, like I I, I'm a 15 year old boy at heart. Like I like explicit gore effects. You know, I'm kind of a gore hound in that way, you know, over the top, at least in this as it is presented in this film. But there is something that kind of just gets uh, desensitizing about it. Like by the time. Mm -hmm. The film really gets gory, probably around like the third act. You're you're just so used to seeing like headshots and people like getting stabbed in the eye and all this stuff that it really doesn't pack the punch that's supposed to. And there's this kind of weird tedium that results from all this uh, violence. I guess it's kind of going back to your point earlier. I guess uh, you kind of had a similar audience reaction as mine. Like nobody really seemed to be reacting much to anything, good or bad. It just seemed like everyone was like, yeah, this is. This is a Hellboy movie. This is a new one. And uh, everyone just kind of got up and left afterwards. And yeah. I don't know if that's everyone's audience reaction. I don't want to speak for everybody. But it just seems like there should be something a little more fun or cheeky or mischievous about this film. And it just feels like that's tacked on or that feels like it's not honest. And so I think people can read through that. And I think that's kind of what's hindering this film for me in many respects. Yeah, this film had its own Ghostbusters 2016 moment where it had like a mid credit scene that sort of like teased 
another film that's never going to happen, I don't think. And it had an end credit scene too, and I was the only person in the theater who waited because I knew it was coming. Oh, me too. Every, everyone else was gone. And it's sad because there was, so I did say all the performances, there were a couple, a couple that I was okay with. I thought that Mia Jovovich, she plays the main villain here. And I feel bad because we haven't really done the story, but that's just because it's so complicated that I don't think it's beneficial to really try to explain what the story is because it's just, to me, it's it's kind of inconsequential almost. But Mia Jovovich, okay. I I think that she's, she's with the Resident Evil movies, is so used to selling this sort of campy, you know, mm-hmm. hard art nature. But Penelope Mitchell kind of does this thing with this kind of like evil hag witch. That that was probably the only thing that I thought it was like, this is where the R rating really helps <laughs> because it actually has like a purpose and it has a way. But the only See, thing is those scenes don't really work as scenes. They're they're kind of nice yeah. little, oh, this could this could be cool if this was in the movie, but they're just extended cameos honestly they're they're nothing to do with the plot whatsoever and so they end up being meaningless yeah i didn't i thought her performance was good and i can see what you're saying but to me especially during those scenes i just kept thinking like man like this is like really trying to be like guillermo del toro and i really wish guillermo was doing this scene like that's (laughs) like so like like that one scene is like straight up pan's labyrinth almost which is and why so, i liked it because like, like oh they're at least trying to sort of recapture some of that and i thought they did a decent job with that but with the other sort of horror thing elements i i thought they completely missed it see to me i kind of preferred when the movie was not trying to be like guillermo del toro's films because that that separated it in a way that didn't make me think like oh i just wish this was guillermo's film <laughs> or i oh i wish we just gotten that third film instead because i think if it really wants to stand out on its own this movie kind of it, it has this weird balance where it wants to be its own kind of thing like the naughty uh, stepchild of the Hellboy movies, but it also kind of wants to revere the other ones or kind of fall in line with them in some ways. And I never really felt like it struck that balance. It felt like kind of like stuck in limbo between those two extremes. And I don't know, I just, anytime the movie reminded me of Guillermo del Toro or his vision or his style, it, it made me a little more bummed out than when the movie tried to do its own thing for better or for worse. Yeah. I think we can agree on that for sure. So round out with our final thoughts here. Yeah, I think this movie, it's a bit of a sad mess. Uh, I'm really bummed that it just did not deliver on anything that I I think that it was, it could have done. I I think you could have had a really great opportunity here to provide something different with the Hellboy franchise, you know, kind of salvaging a a group of movies that were really good, but they're, you know, they're not going to get their third one. So I was all for this movie being successful and, for having some counter-programming to the more, you know, I, I don't know if sanitize is too mean of a word, but a lot of our comic book movies are pretty sanitized. I think, you know, with the exception of like Deadpool and Logan, with 20th Century Fox gone now, though, you, you really feel like those movies are a big question mark, like that kind of R-rated comic book superhero movie, because the Disney brand is so protective of certain R-rated elements being put out in their movies. And so I was hoping this would be a big hit at, you know and it would it would have some sort of creative energy but it doesn't have it unfortunately it's the humor completely fell flat i i felt so bad for it <laughs> during this movie because no one in the theater laughed it was very sad but yeah, <laughs> yeah so for me th- this one's a c minus i i think that it just it really doesn't have much to grasp onto i just don't see a reason i i don't see a lot of people watching it and getting anything out of it mainly because it is too long for how bad it is if that makes any sense Mm -hmm. and it just really it it drags itself so much toward the end like you really just don't know 
on the one hand, you're probably thinking to yourself, well, I don't really know where this is going. But then where it goes, even though some of it's, it's not that it's unexpected. It's just sort of like, oh, okay, I guess you can do that. And yeah, I didn't have any of that satisfaction it probably was hunting for. But what about you, Will Ashton? What's your, what's your grade on this one? Um, I'm a little more positive, but not too much. I, I feel like... I feel a little more reactionary because I feel like the film isn't quite as bad as some critics are making it seem. Like, it's not a fantastic for 2015 situation. It's not an incomprehensible mess, in my view. Like, I could kind of follow the story, even though there are a lot of jumps in locations, like, almost comically so. Uh, and I, I just think that this movie, like you're saying, it just feels more disappointing than anything else. Like, you could have gotten something really cool or different or at least something that would have appeased people in lieu of a third Hellboy movie from Guillermo del Toro. And this just felt like it was underwhelming in pretty much every sense. Like, I think I think there's stuff here I liked. I mean, just like from a, a like giddy, like badass level, like a hell or um, Excalibur on fire from hell is kind of fun. Like, I just I'm sorry. I like that. <laughs> um, I just have fun with stuff like that or like, you know, like uh, little things like the creatures and like the giant fight, like you said. There's stuff in here I enjoyed, but ultimately, yeah, I just feel like this felt like a missed opportunity. It feels like pretty cheap, too. I don't think the budget was that much different than the Guillermo del Toro movies, maybe a couple uh, million shorter. But it, it just looks a lot cheaper than the other ones that we gotten. And yeah, it, it someone compared it to like an Amazon Prime pilot. And that's basically how I feel about it. Uh, like a bad Amazon Prime pilot, mm-hmm, I should stress. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'll give it a C. Because, like I said, I'm not quite as negative as you are on it, and a couple other people. But again, like you said, missed opportunity. Yeah, well, I don't think I'm as negative as some people. I think some people really, really hate, um, yeah. you know, <laughs> what they got from this. So, yeah, I think the only positive review I've come across, I think, was from William Bibiani. He he gave the the film a positive review on the wrap, and he called it ironically. Yes, yeah, they had that piece. <laughs> yeah, he get, he called it a horrifyingly good time and uh, said it was a wellspring of creativity. Um, John Squires, I think, from Blade Disgusting gave it like four out of five stars I saw. So that's the only opinion I saw was like that was high. But yeah, mm. other than that, it seems like everyone's not digging this thing at all. Yeah, 15% on Rotten Tomatoes as of this recording. Only 15% of critics liked it out of, I don't know how many saw it. They didn't do a lot of advanced screenings, but box office wise, yeah. They were hoping this one would make at least, you know, 17 to 21 million. And it's in over three, like we said, 3,300 theaters. So you'd hope you'd at least be getting into like double digits, right? But now mm-hmm. it's not looking like it'll even get into double digits. It only made uh, not even 5 million on its first day. And that includes wow. Thursday night previews. So yeah, yeah this, this one's looking like it might just barely make 10 to 12 million, which not, not, not great. Well, Ashton, you know, I, I think this uh, this budget, budget it's fifty million. Oh wow, really? Yeah, so it'll I it was probably like thirty million. <laughs> I know it. It definitely doesn't have the feeling of a fifty million budget, but yeah, I don't. I don't think this is going to play super well overseas, so I don't think that's going to help it. And then, I mean, it might get up to like forty, forty-five million box office wise, like total. And that's definitely not going to make up for marketing costs. But you can sort of see why the marketing sort of really tapered off. It, it just you kind of get the sense that they were sort of seeing that they did they shouldn't be like pouring money into this thing. So mm-hmm. that's Hellboy. We'll see what happens though. You know, maybe it'll maybe it'll do better than we think. 
Let's move on to our next review. I really wanted to see this one, but I'm at the San Francisco Film Festival and I've been watching a ton of other movies and this is the one that I could not catch and I, I was hoping to. I, I was my big plan was to squeeze this one in, but I missed the, the showtime before it. But missing Link, the latest film from Leica. Will Ashton, you did get a chance to see this earlier in the week and you wrote a review yeah. for it, I think. Uh, yeah, I'm actually midway through my review now, so I'll send that off today, and it'll probably get published either later today or tomorrow on awesome. Monday. So, yeah, uh, this will be for the young folks, by the way, not for Cinemaholics.com. Um, yeah, I yeah, I saw this. I think um, not this Saturday, but the last Saturday, so a little over a week ago now. And uh, like you said, it's a new Leica film, their fifth production, I believe, their fifth feature film. Uh, it has Hugh Jackman, Zach Galifianakis, Zoe Saldana. And the general gist of the story, because we're not really getting too deep in the plots this week, is um, an explorer of like kind of mythical and supernatural beings uh, goes on his journey to find uh, Sasquatch or Bigfoot. And he does find him, and it turns out that he can speak English. He's like very fluent in English, actually. And uh, he just wants to be reacquainted with his other Yeti folks. And uh, they kind of go on this uh, cross country, or like, I guess, uh, around the world journey to get reacquainted or help him get reacquainted with his uh, other brethren. And um, as a film, compared to the other Leica films, this one is definitely more uh, kid focused or at least kid friendly. Not to say the other ones aren't kid friendly, but this one is definitely geared more towards the um, like under 10 crowd. Mm. There's a lot of slapstick humor, a lot more kind of like silly jokes compared to kind of like the darker, kind of more gothic other films that we've gotten from Leica, like Coraline and uh, Paranorman. But there's also like Kubo and the Box Trolls, which are also kind of a little bit kid-friendly as well. So as this film is concerned, I would say it's probably my least favorite of the Leica films. The animation remains gorgeous. I mean, every production they've done from an animation standpoint is just incredible. I mean, I I just don't know how they do half the things they do. I mean, the way they incorporate mm-hmm. sets and the way that they kind of seamlessly incorporate stop motion animation with CG, it, it really does show that they are some of the best in that particular regard. However, I just kind of wish they spent that much time on putting together a script that wasn't ultimately a bit generic in my view. I mean, the story kind of paces as you expect it to. Um, I, I really didn't find myself that engaged on a story level. Like I said, I think this is for a younger crowd, so I take that into account. But ultimately, um, yeah, it's fine. It's cute. It's decent. I enjoyed myself enough to be uh, amused by it, but I, I didn't really get much out of it compared to the other films. I don't think the message hit me as strong, and I feel like um, there was something ironically a bit missing here uh, as far as what we've gotten from other like a film. So for me, it's a, it's like a fine B-. minus. You know, it It's a good rental, but I'd rather people see it in theaters, even though I'm not that high on it, because uh, it seems like Leica... Compare them to like 10 years ago with Coraline. They were kind of like this up and coming animation house. Like people were really telling them as like kind of like the next Ardman Entertainment or something like that. The American mm-hmm. version of that. And you look at their films now and most of them have not made back their budget to say the least. And they haven't really found a big commercial hit since Coraline. So I'm worried uh, quite significantly as a stop motion animation fan that this might be. If not their last film, then maybe the last will get for a good while. And, um, you know, I want people to support it. I want more movies like this, even though this one wasn't really my cup of tea. 
Um, I really would like to see more films from Leica. And I'm kind of worried because Travis Knight, the guy who's uh, basically the head of it, and he did uh, Kubo as a director, he's basically moved on as well. He's doing like Bumblebee and other movies. So I'm worried that this might be curtains for Leica. And I don't want it to be. But if it is, then it'll be underwhelming in quite a few different ways. I couldn't agree with you more. You know, the last few Leica films have had pretty big budgets. You know, these things aren't cheap to make. And if we're going by Kubo and the Two Strings and Box Trolls, Missing Link might have made about, might have cost about 60 million. And Mm -hmm. that's not good news because it's not doing well at the box office so far to what you were saying. It might have better international appeal, but it's looking like it only, it'll probably only make about 10 million opening weekend. And it's going to just taper off from there, right? So, yeah. Especially yeah, with Avengers coming up. Especially with Avengers. And I, I just, I don't know. I, I don't know how it's going to do beyond domestically, because that includes Canada, <laughs> right? Yeah. So, I, I'm definitely, I, I'm so scared for Leica right now because Kubo and the Two Strings, I mean, that was one of my favorite animated films from I loved years it, yeah. ago. It's such a great film. I, I know you kind of said that it was like a little bit more kid friendly, but it was definitely more kid friendly in a good way, right? Where like in the Pixar sort of way, where kids right, can watch yeah. it and then adults can really, really get something out of it. And mm-hmm. I've been sort of dreading seeing Missing Link because none of the trailers have grabbed me on this, and and I was, I was like, oh no, <laughs> if this movie doesn't mm-hmm. do well, the, like you're saying, I, I think this could be uh, kind of a bad, bad situation for the the fine folks at Leica. So we'll see though how it does. And and if anything comes of it, I'm not aware of any other projects coming from Leica in the near future, but uh, I guess it, it's a big question mark for sure at the moment. Yeah. I mean, the only, I mean, this is just me kind of thinking hypothetically, I know that Netflix is surprisingly kind of supportive of stop motion animation. I think Henry or is it Henry or Hallie or Henry or Harry Salick. I, I don't know which one it is, but, um, the guy did James and Giant Peach and Coraline, the director of that, and uh, Nightmare Before Christmas. He's like making a movie with Netflix. Um, there's a couple other stop motion films like Pinocchio from Guillermo del Toro is happening Netflix. I could possibly see some scenario for where Netflix and like buys Leica and uh, keeps them in function, which wouldn't be the best option because I really would miss seeing these movies in theaters. But um, if it keeps them alive, that might be the best option at this point because I really don't know. Yeah, it's it's Henry Salak, by the way. Sorry, Henry Salak. Yeah, I, Henry, I yeah. always mess up his name for some reason. So sorry about that, Henry Salak, uh, fan of the show. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> you can you can uh, pause on that email. We got you. But okay, yeah. so that's that's missing link. So so far, it, it sounds like it sounds like we we don't have a lot of like. It, it's been a kind of C territory movie, kind of a B territory movie. Uh, let's move mm-hmm. on to High Life, uh, the latest one from Claire Denis, which I think oh, I'm is, excited for this one. It's playing in limited release right now, and I had a wonderful, wonderful privilege to see this at the San Francisco Film Festival. It's also playing in limited release here in the Bay Area, but the screening I went to, Claire Dini was there, and she was able to answer our questions and, and talk more about her filmography as a whole. And this is only her second film to have English in it. And it's it's her first film, though, that's like fully on English language, like really feels like a film from her that is hitting American audiences. Like it feels like the first time she's really wanting to maybe have Americans connect with her for the first time beyond cinephiles. And I'm curious, Will, I mean, where are you at with Claire Denis? I mean, are are you, have you watched a lot of her films? Are you a fan? Uh, Where are you at? 
Uh, unfortunately, I haven't really seen a lot of her films. Um, I'm trying to think if I have actually seen any of them yet. And I know I want to see her latest one, Let the Sunshine In, but I missed a chance when we were playing at the theater where I work. And I know it's on Hulu now, so I might give it a chance uh, sometime soon. But I am really excited to see High Life, which I've been hearing many great things about so far. Yeah, I, I miss Let the Sunshine In as well. Uh, but I, I've seen a lot of her films at this point. Um, she's one of my favorite French directors. And her first film, Chocolats, not the, not the Johnny Depp one. <laughs> yeah, that was that was one of the first uh, artistic films I ever saw uh, when I was a kid. And she just—it's it, not a film you want to maybe see as a kid, I guess. But it, it is definitely one that I think you know. I loved her films because I would watch them when I was younger because I would I love to read the subtitles. I, I I love engaging with films that way. I'm very strange, but I like to read subtitles. I like to make sure I no, get I like every subtitles. single word. Well, I think some people yeah, really think it ruins the experience, but when when I go to a theater and and listeners know I have you know I have to wear hearing aids, I have terrible hearing, but I, that's why I really love foreign films because I never have to worry about that, <laughs> and it's it's very yeah. nice. But yeah, so Claire Denis, uh, definitely a favorite of mine, and when I when I first heard about High Life, which is the first time she's ever made a film that someone could maybe confuse for genre. For being a genre film, it is on on the outside looking in. It does kind of look like a sci-fi film. It's set in space. the The film opens with uh, a garden on a spaceship out in the middle of nowhere in space, and Robert Pattinson plays this astronaut who is working on the space the spaceship out in deep space. And on the little monitor, there's a baby. And the baby is kind of babbling and, and, you know, he's sort of saying, you know, he's trying to talk to the baby and keep her calm while he's like working on the spaceship. And you quickly realize it's just the two of them uh, out in the spaceship. How come? Why are they there? Why, why are they on this shabby spaceship? What, what reason could there be for a man and a baby to be out in deep space alone? And this is a film about isolation and love in a way that, it plays out through flashbacks, uh, kind of explaining where they are. You kind of find out, and I'm really going to be giving away very, very little of this film. Don't you worry. But it it's it sort of explains like how they got here, and it's a bit of a it's a prison that they're in, and you quickly realize that something has gone deeply, deeply wrong. And I, I will say that the person from the cast who there's Mia Goth, she's in this, but the person who really shines out here in addition to Robert Pattinson is Juliette Benoist. She's been in a lot of other Claire Denise films. I think she was also in Let the Sunshine In. She and was, yeah. yeah, and I, I have to say, you know, as far as I, I'm a big sucker for really emotional, abstract sci-fi films. I, I think Annihilation, Ex Machina, both Alex Garland films, but some of my favorite sci-fi films in recent years. I really love what Denis Villeneuve did with Blade Runner 2049, which not quite abstract, but definitely more of like a, a contemplative science fiction experience. While those films though, those were much more about the future. They were a little bit more of like the future of humanity as a whole. This is Claire Denis and she does not do films that are like that. That she doesn't really, she, when she does science fiction, she completely subverts your expectations on what that means. And she's much more about humans in the present, but using futuristic styles to sort of illuminate that. And it, it's kind of genius to see. And 
you know, watching this movie, it, you just can't help but sort of sit back and and let the writing in this. Uh, her she wrote co-wrote this with John Paul Fargeau, who's done a lot of things with her before. Uh, they've collaborated a lot, and and Jeff Cox also worked on the screenplay. And it, it it's just one of those films that you just have to soak in, and you, you can't you can't look at it too literally. But I don't say that like if you take it literally, it, it doesn't have plot problems or anything like that. I think it's pretty airtight. Uh, no space puns intended. <laughs> but I, I do think though that you're really you're really supposed to be looking at it through the lens of a metaphor that you're never going to feel like this movie is getting away from you. It's never doing things that just make you feel like though this would only happen in a pretentious movie. You, you really just sort of have to like be fully engaged with it to sort of understand what these characters really mean to each other and to themselves. And that's why I, I sort of jokingly refer to this as, you know, Claire Denis made an Andre Tarkovsky movie and it's unlike any Andre Tarkovsky movie. This isn't, you know, soccer. It, it's, it's not Solaris, but it, it absolutely is borrowing heavily from what makes those films so memorable and so beloved. So uh, I think for true film lovers, High Life is a must-see. I, I think even if you walk away from it not quite as in love with it as I am, uh, and I really am, it's one of my favorite films of the year, I, I think that you you definitely are not going to regret the experience, especially if you catch this one on the big screen. It's hitting limited release right now. I could not recommend it more. It is a, a definite R. I mean, this is a film that is very substantial, it really, there's a lot of raw human sexuality in this movie. There's fluids, there's kind of a gross factor. And it's so crazy too, to see this right before seeing Hellboy, which I think does not understand how you take the gross things of life and sort of use them to make you connect with human beings. This film does that. And it shows you the dark side of our sexuality. It shows us what's great about it it shows us the potential for human life and it's it's it has me contemplating a lot about what what i take for granted and what i consider you know the fundamental human experience and for me a film that can do that is a must watch and then some so i i'm an a minus on high life uh, i think everyone should go see this and uh, assuming they they uh they understand of course the r rating because there there is that but and in fact i didn't even check if it's r rated i'm just assuming it is because i can't imagine this being pg-13 so uh someone can fact check me if i have that wrong but that is high life and will ash and uh oh and i forgot to mention this is a24 acquired the the just the distribution rights for this it premiered at toronto international film festival and it, I think it hit limited release in France last year, so it's technically a 2018 film, but for us, it's it's uh, obviously 2019 at this point. So, Will Ashton, uh, is, is High Life going to be playing in your area soon? And if so, do you think you're going to catch this one? Yeah, I believe it comes out next week in limited release in our area, and I'm 100% planning to check this out. I've heard many great things, and it just sounds like it's my jam. Like I really like contemplative heady sci-fi movies like this uh going off to your earlier point one of my favorite movies of this decade is under the skin which i know is a movie you don't care as much for but i really love that film how does it compare to that film i would say that's kind of what i'm saying with this one it's like if you have the reaction to high life in the same way that i did to under the skin i don't regret watching that movie at all i'm so glad that i did see it right because uh, under the skin yeah 
was one of my favorite theater experiences probably ever. Like, I really thought the theater yeah. experience was just incredible for that film. So I, if it's anything like that film, I will be there as soon as I can. With, and uh, I was going to say with my bag of popcorn, but uh, I usually don't get popcorn. This one sounds like it might not be a popcorn <laughs> film. So I'll I be did there. have popcorn, but yeah. it was very difficult oh. to, <laughs> to eat it. I, I kind of had to say, scarf yeah. it down. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, 100% plan to check this one out. I can't wait. I hope you do. I really do. I, and I think that, yeah, with Under the Skin, again, it was a film that didn't quite work for me, but not in the sense that I had anything negative, like anything mean to say about it. And I, I think some people might, I mean, some people, I, I used the word pretentious earlier, because I think that can sort of be the reaction some folks have to films like this, where they feel like, ah, you just like it, and but it's just boring to everyone else. But I really don't yeah. think this movie is boring at all all <laughs> I, I really don't but uh, i'll be curious to hear your thoughts on it down the road when you're able to check it out but that's high life and it has an 84 percent on rotten tomatoes which seems about right i think i think a lot of people it is, it is polarizing and i think that's why i like it as much as i do uh polarizing for a film that the kind of film it is right like obviously 84 yeah. percent is really high but for for kind of like a really indie movie that not a lot of people have seen, you know, usually films like this they might be more in the '90s. And I, but I do think that there are some very thoughtful people who are watching this movie and not enjoying it. And I can see why. And and I don't, uh, I definitely don't want to diminish what they might have to say about it. So that's High Life. Hope people check it out. Well, you saw a movie that is confounding me because it was a surprise movie that was. I think they first showed this at Coachella, which is going on right now, and which I was supposed to be at. <laughs> I'm so, oh, I had yeah. tickets to Coachella. I did. I, I did. And I, I wish I had gone. But I had the San Francisco Film Festival and, and other uh, engagements, so I did not go this year. But yeah, Will Ashen, this is, this is an interesting one. What is Guava Island? Yeah. The only thing I know about it is that it has Donald Glover and I think someone he's related to did the screenplay, and it's Hiro Mirai is as a director who did his This Is America music video, a bunch of other really great music mm -hmm. videos. And he also directed the first couple episodes of Barry on HBO. So, yeah, I, and Rihanna, duh, Rihanna is in this too. What in the world mm -hmm. is this movie? How can people watch it? Why is it a surprise? Is it good? Yeah, um, so this is a movie that uh, it's called a Childish Gambino film, which if you don't know, Childish Gambino is the music alter ego of Donald Glover, who is uh, the musician probably most well known for this is america the, the song you were talking about earlier mm -hmm. uh but yeah this is um a project that has been shrouded in secrecy for basically as long as it's existed which is uh last summer they filmed it i think between um don glover's pu uh, publicity tour for solo and his uh music tour in the fall for childish gambino mm -hmm. so they kind of filmed this on the whim uh what you were saying earlier, it was written by his brother, Stephen Glover, who is a writer on Atlanta, which is um, what Hira Mirai also directs. He directs, I think, most, if not all, the episodes. Uh, no, wait, sorry. Yeah, he directs most of them, I think, because Don Glover has directed a few as well. Um, so, yeah, this is a movie. It's, that's his first movie as a director. And uh, they, they filmed this kind of in shroud, in secrecy. No one really knew exactly what it was until it just kind of on the whim premiered at Coachella, like you said, this week. And then it went on to Amazon Prime on Saturday. It was free on Amazon Prime for about 24 hours. It's on there now, I believe, but you have to have an Amazon Prime subscription. But if you have a chance to check it out, definitely I would say, if, especially if you're a fan of uh, Don Glover, I would highly recommend checking this film out. Um, I don't know what I can say exactly about the plot, because I kind of respect the mystery element of the film, and I kind of want to keep that intact. But 
the general, like, very, very loose gist of the film is that it's uh, an island musical uh, centered around a lot of the songs that we've heard from uh, Childish Gambino of late, like This is America, Feels Like Summer, uh, a couple others of late. Um, and it's focused on a musician who's going to put on this festival for the island, and he's, like, very well known, very well respected. Oh, like the Fire Festival. It, <laughs> Not exactly, but uh, a little bit. Um, he's going to put on this music festival where he's going to be a part of this music festival later that day. It's kind of like a day in the life for him. Uh, he is uh, romantically inclined with Rihanna uh, and they uh, kind of have like this uh, like lovers star cross relationship as uh, demonstrated by an earlier animation sequence. I like how you say uh, and, that, romantically inclined, as if yeah. as if he has to be convinced. <laughs> it's like, oh yeah, man, sure. I'm just inclined to be romantic with Rihanna. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, there are forces uh, who kind of impose on his festival ambitions and are stressing that he should not be doing this festival for various different reasons. And as you uh, see here, it's kind of like a story of... Um, artistic freedom versus commercial restraint. And that's more or less what the story is talking about, but I won't say more than that uh, because I think there's, there's a little more that goes on after that. But um, yeah, I mean, just as what seems at first to be a kind of like Island hangout movie with two celebrities, it's a lot of fun. I mean, it's shot beautifully. I believe it's shot on 16 millimeter. I don't know for sure though, because there's really not much known about this production from a public standpoint. Uh, but it looks beautiful. I mean, it's clear that Hiro Mirai is just a wonderful director. The way he composes and shoots scenes, he he feels like he's like two decades more of experience. And I, I, I have to assume he has at this point. I don't know actually know how old he is. But uh, yeah, he just he just really knows how to shoot and film and capture a lot in just a single frame. And um, I am really excited to see what he does next. I don't know if he's going to do more yeah. TV or if he's going to jump into uh, more films. I'm assuming he's probably going to stay involved with Atlanta and Barry, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I, I'll say, right. Cause well, you kind of mentioned it. He's, he's a young guy. He's only in his thirties and he's been, he's been doing music videos. Some of my favorite music videos since like 2005. So mm-hmm. he's been around to, to what you're saying, but he's still definitely like, I think he he's I don't think he's at his peak quite yet. Like I think his best yeah. stuff is coming for sure. Yeah, I mean you're just it's just great because you're seeing like a filmmaker on the rise. Like you're seeing somebody yeah. who has that great like he has greatness in him, and you're seeing that greatness come out. But you know, like you're like to what you're saying that there's more to come. Like this is just like mm-hmm. a filmmaker who's in bloom. And so uh, yeah, I, I think I don't think this film really like uh, comes together in a way that makes it great. Like I think it's it's good. I think it's solid. I definitely think it's worth a watch if you have a chance to see it on Amazon Prime. It's only an hour long. It's a little less, actually, than an hour, 55 minutes. Um, so it's a quick and breezy watch with some other stuff on its mind. I don't think it's quite like the like powerhouse that This Is America, the music video, is, but it definitely is worth watching. Um, I will stress, though, that even though this is a musical, Rihanna weirdly doesn't sing in it, which I think is uh, confounding some people. I saw some responses on Twitter where people How? were like, what? But, she yeah, sings she, at the grocery is, store. How did they not? I don't become... know, man. But uh, <laughs> okay, uh, yeah. Right. But she just so you know ahead of time. If there Drake no was involved, numbers. she'd be singing the whole thing. But okay. Well, aren't they not friends now, Drake and Rihanna? I don't keep up with the latest gossip. Sure, um, but uh, anyway, 
yeah, Guava Island, uh, definitely worth watching. I'm going to give it a strong B, just because, like I said, I mean, once you kind of know what's going to happen, it, it, it doesn't really, like, blow the lid off anything. Like, it, the story itself is pretty, uh, it, it, you know, you can kind of guess where it's going to go, and that's ultimately where it goes at, after a certain point. But um, I do think there's a lot in here that's good, and you're just watching a lot of just really talented people, uh, like you said, like on the rise and kind of coming into their own in many respects. So, you know, as a fun island movie from them, uh, it's definitely a highly enjoyable watch, but I'll give it a strong, firm B on the. Yeah, I'm going to be seeing this right after we're done with the show, <laughs> because I, I really have been, as soon as I heard about it, uh, I'm excited to see Disney princess Letitia Wright uh, on screen again. And Oh, I yeah, think- yeah, she's in too. Yeah, yeah, and, and Donald Glover, he and I go way back. Um, he's we've oh. never met, but I like to think, you know, we're yeah. We, uh, I, I think well, like I mean all the way back to his sketch show days, and then right. of course Derek Community. Comedy, I was gonna say, yeah, yeah, he he's just been one of the most fascinating young creators, artists to 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 come into his own during the twenty teens, and so yeah, Guala yeah. Island definitely yeah. sounds like it's worth checking out. I was going to say, I mean, just talking about him alone, like his star power, his charisma is off the charts in this film. Like it's like watching his film. You're like, why is this guy not like in the lead role of like every movie right now? Because he is just he's clearly a superstar. Like he like you said, he's immensely talented, yeah. very versatile. And he has, is like, obviously he just, a huge hit. And yeah, mm-hmm. but he's extremely charismatic. And so, um, yeah, I'm really looking forward to seeing what he does, because it's clear that he's like kind of forging his own path and doing a lot of different things right now. And it's very exciting to see. Yeah, I think the last movie I remember seeing him in was probably Spider-Man Homecoming. And then before that, The Martian, that I want to say. What was that? Solo, the Star Wars story. Oh, yeah. He was in Solo, wasn't he? He was great in Solo. Yeah. But <laughs> I don't know. forgot about it. I forgot about Solo. I like Solo, too. It's, there's no, there's yeah. nothing behind that, I promise. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. He was um, very good in Solo, I agree. Yeah. All right. Well, that'll do it then. Oh, and he's going to, we should say, he's going to be in The Lion King. Uh, he's voice of Simba. Oh, yeah, that's so. right. Yeah, mm-hmm. that'll be coming soon. But all right, we'll lash in. Uh, I, I think yeah. uh, I think I think you should do this next one because um, you you had like a really quick review you wanted to do, and then I have a really quick review I want to do. We're we're just going to sort of bring up that we watch them, and we're not going to. I, I guess we're not going to spend too much time on them. But you saw Little, which was uh, one of the other wider releases. It was it only came out in twenty six hundred theaters, but. Uh, what is this one? This one is uh, looks like a body swap movie. What's going on? Uh, sorta. It's like the anti-big, as the title would suggest. It's about uh, Regina Hall's character is like this uh, snooty boss who uh, has kind of lost touch with her inner child. She bullies her employees. Like, just doesn't really have any respect for anybody else. And uh, through some magical circumstances. She becomes, uh, I believe, like ten or year or ten or eleven years old again, and uh, it's it's very reminiscent of that scene, the parody scene in Funny People. If you remember with uh, Justin Long and um, Adam Sandler, where Adam Sandler gets turned into a baby, oh, he's like, no, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like the, you asked the wizard to make me young. I didn't mean this young, and it's just like it, if you watch that scene right <laughs> after Little. It's like this is exactly what this movie is. Like even down to very like weirdly specific details. Like I I would say like they they might have a plagiarism case in this case. Uh, wow. The this based I don't know. It's probably highly intentional because or un- unintentional. I mean because um the one 
novelty point of this film is that according to reports, I mean, this is, I think Will Packer said this at CinemaCon that, uh, Marze Martin, I believe that's the girl. She's on, she's in black. Martin. Yeah. She's in blackish, uh, child actress. Uh, she apparently pitched this film to producer Will part, uh, Will Packer at, uh, the age of 10. And, yeah, uh, yeah. She's a, and she's an executive producer in the film, which makes her, uh, Definitely one of the youngest, if not the youngest, executive producer in Hollywood history. So that's like the main novelty point of the film. And I do think as far as her performance is concerned, that's probably the best thing about the film. It carries a lot of it. And uh, she does have like some natural star power that I would like to see in a better film. However, this film, it's just a mess, honestly. (laughs) Like there's no ingrained logic to the film. The jokes are very broad and to the point where... Like, there's nothing that's set up that's really executed well. There's plot points that are brought up and completely dismissed. Uh, just, it's an all-around messy film, and to me, it wasn't very funny. I, I, You know, comedy is very subjective, so I can't speak for anybody else. But for me, I really didn't get much of anything out of it, besides getting acquainted with uh, Marzia Martin and knowing that she has star power. Uh, I think that was the main point of interest for this film, is to showcase that she's a star on the rise. Because I don't watch Blackish, so... This is my introduction to her, and she definitely has talent. However, I don't think this film... Oh, it's also um, Isa Ray's, I think, first film from Insecure. Yeah. Uh, who's also good as well. I, it's well, she was, in, um, but... she was in The Hate You Give. Oh, yeah, that's right. But it's like her first like semi-lead role. So, sure. um, like this... Yeah. So, um, what, wait, did Will Packer produce The Hate You Give? I don't think he did, right? I don't think that so. That was uh, Fox. Yeah, that was Fox 2000. So, because um, I think he primarily works with Universal. So, uh, yeah, ultimately, yeah, it's, it's a C minus film for me. I really don't have much to say about it. I just, it didn't, didn't float my boat. Wasn't, wasn't anything that gave me any hearty chuckles. Uh, if you, uh, if you think it might be your thing, check it out. But I'd say it's a HBO viewing or red box rental at best. Wow. C minus pretty, pretty harsh, but, uh, yeah, I, I've been wanting to see this because Regina Hall loved her and support the girls and oh yeah, she's great in that. And I, I was I was looking forward to this one. Love you, Sarah. So I, I, don't, I just don't know if I'll have the time to fit this one in. Um, but yeah, because this, this is kind of like uh, the same, the uh, Kenya Barris, James Lopez. This is kind of the same producer team that we got from Girls Trip, which is great. And Night School, it which is, is like yeah. one of the worst movies last year. So I was, I was kind of worried this was going to fit the latter more than the former. But that is little. And I have a similarly kind of brief sort of mini review for the death of dick long which premiered at sundance and uh, i checked this one out at the sf film festival and the, the interesting thing about so the deck of death of dick long comes to us from it was uh, directed and produced by daniel scheinart and written by billy chu uh, they were at my screening and there's no trailer as of yet for death of dick long so we watched this movie really no idea what it was about i didn't read any of the reviews it, it did premiere at sundance and uh, I think I think some people definitely like wrote about it and and had some certain I don't want to call them think pieces about it, but the the less you know about this movie, the better I think. If if you're considering if you're if you're thinking about seeing it, it's oh boy, where to begin? Um, so Daniel Scheinart actually stars in this film as Dick Long, and the basic premise is that Dick Long is dead. And his two friends, uh, Zeke, played by Michael Abbott Jr., and Earl, played by Andre Highland, who are relative newcomers. I, I actually, I, I'm not aware of them being in any other films. Uh, I think uh, 
Yeah, I, I, I want to say I have, I've never seen him in other things. The only other, the only stars I think you might really recognize, right, are uh, Sarah Baker uh, is in this. Uh, she she's definitely <laughs> she definitely has a funny role. Uh, Jessica Wexler, Roy Wood Jr. But as as far as the plot goes, these these two guys, their friend Dick is dead. And they're trying to do their best to cover up any involvement in it. You don't know what involvement they really have. And so the film is kind of ambiguous of like, well, did they have something to do with Dick dying? Because Dick is like their best friend from like childhood. But for some mysterious reason, they they would rather, you know, they, they just do not want the truth of what happened to Dick to get out. So they have to hide it from uh, Dick's wife. They had to hide it. They have to hide it from Zeke's own wife. And, and the main character really here is Zeke. You spend a lot of time with him sort of dealing with just these, like he's this entire event has clearly shaken him. And if tone problems could be a movie, it would be this one <laughs> because this movie has mm. some of the worst tonal problems I have ever seen in a film. Uh, entire think pieces could be written about how on a dime this film will go back and forth between really serious and really funny and it is funny it is so funny and and i don't want to disparage this film a lot i i just think that it it just goes way too far i think not with what happens and what the quote secret is i actually think that there's something kind of poetic about it in a way that you can maybe relate it to to films of this nature from the 70s and 80s but this film just, I don't know. They, they just did not, they had a good mission here, I think, which was to make a film set in Alabama. I I forgot to mention this, but it does take place in the deep South. And they had an opportunity here to really tell a more authentic story about the South in a way that doesn't, uh, I think uh, Daniel Scheinert actually said this. He's like, I want to make fun of the South for the right reasons. And usually films don't do that. They make fun of the South for the wrong reasons. And they do nail that. I think they do nail the setting. You you do get the sense that these actors, they're from this area. They understand this area. And there's something about it that does kind of feel, if not revelatory, at least like it has that Logan Lucky appeal. Uh, I think somebody in the audience actually brought that up in the Q and A, and I couldn't agree more. And I think that Logan Lucky though is a much better movie. I, I know it's not it's not the best movie in the world or anything, but I just thought that that actually did kind of balance the comedy really well with the heart. This movie doesn't have a lot of heart at all, honestly. It's got a little bit here and there, but you just really walk away from this movie hating most of the characters in a way that I don't think it was intending. So Death of Dick Long, we'll talk more about it, I think, when you see it, Will, because Daniel Scheinart is one of the Daniels behind your favorite film of 2016, I want to say, Swiss Army Man? That's correct, yeah. Yeah, so I know you've been really looking forward to this one. I'm not really going to give away anything else uh, on this movie, and I really, to be honest, I have not given much away at all. Uh, There's a lot going on here, but Maybe once you see that, we can we can talk about this film at more length. But for now, I'm a C, and I'm really sad about that. I, this is one of the films I was most anticipating for the film festival because I also really, really liked Swiss Army Man. And I was hoping it would just – it has some elements of Swiss Army Man that I really liked about that film where it tackles toxic masculinity and it, you know, ideas of like men and, and what the things that sort of hold us back from being, you know – self-actualized right and 
I don't think it has anything to do with the fact that one of the Daniels wasn't able to to collaborate on this project. Um, and Shinard actually made it pretty clear. He's like, hey, we're going to be making movies together again. And like, you know, it was just, uh, I think, Will, we talked about this off the air, but I think uh, it had, maybe it had something to do with like him having a child or something like that. And um, so when, when they make another movie together, I, I don't know what the result will be, but I, I just, I hope it's better than this one because this one just didn't click with me, even though I really wanted it to. So yeah, I'm a C on the death of Dick Long. As funny as that title is but funny in a very juvenile way and, and that's the thing mm-hmm. it doesn't need that joke like the death of dick long it 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 ends up being the sort of things like uh that's not the tone of this movie really and so that that's just maybe maybe that sums up my confusion with it and and maybe it's something maybe upon rewatch if i have a better grasp of what they're going for i i might have a better time but for now i'm pretty low on it so yeah that's death of dick long it's a shame, yeah, because I was going to say, I mean, one of the things I really do like, among other things, about Swiss Army Man is the way that they're able to balance that uh, juvenile comedy with some serious, profound drama. And so to know that that wasn't quite uh, achieved this time, that balance is fairly disheartening for me to hear. But like you said, I'll still check it out. I'm very curious about the film. I guess I'll just tamper my expectations going in. Yeah, I, I hope I hope you have a much better experience with it, even though I was definitely primed to like it, that's for sure, you know, and it's it's easy to really like a film, right, when the director is there and, and the screenwriter's there and they're you know, it, it's exciting and, and it, it's definitely a, a an optimal environment to really get sucked into a film. And the audience was with this film. People were laughing mm-hmm. a lot, but I just found myself not laughing much. And yeah. even though I thought parts were funny, I just wasn't in the mood to laugh because of scenes had pushed me into a certain area where I, that didn't feel like the right response. So I will say, though, my favorite character by far was Earl. Uh, Andre Highland is Earl. Absolutely. Like his scenes, I think they do strike that balance really well because his his performance, it just never gets old, his shtick. Uh, but yeah, the, the other performances here just kind of, I felt undercut the whole thing. But hmm. with that, it's let's... Let's move on to a film that uh, I know, Will, you have been uh, championing from the rooftops. No, that's not quite true. But you did write a review for The Man Who Killed Don Quixote on cinemaholics.com. Uh, definitely can read that yeah. right now and get your full thoughts on it. But uh, yeah, real quick, what, what is this film? Who made it? And what, what's the story? Why, why should we care about The Man Who Killed Don Quixote? Oh, man. Well, this is a very long story, but uh, I'll try to keep it brief. Um Terry Gilliam has been trying to make this movie for a long time, between 20 and 30 years. Uh, it's a passion project of his that's been kind of like his great white whale, that uh, Moby Dick metaphor. It's just always been in his grasp, but never quite achieved. He can't – he even went into production once or twice, as seen in the documentary Lost in La Manca, which is definitely – if you're ever looking to get into filmmaking, uh, definitely check out that documentary just to show you like how like problems or things outside your control can kind of uh, hinder your vision. But – um, yeah, I mean, it's a film that's kind of been like one of those like long rumored, like maybe not long rumored, but like long delayed films that like, would we ever actually get this film? Like people were speculating, like, would we ever actually see the man who killed Don Quixote or would Terry Gilliam unfortunately pass before that ever came to be? And, uh, there were reports coming out like around last year, two years ago that he was in the midst of shooting the film with Adam Driver and, uh, Jonathan Price. And people were like, we'll see. Who knows? And then uh, he was like, I'm in post-production. You know, like, we're uh, we're wrapping it up. I had some test screenings. It's, it's turning out pretty strong. We're like, we'll see. We don't know. <laughs> don't get your and hopes then, up. <laughs> uh, yeah. 
And then last year, it's like, it's finished. We're going to premiere at cons. And it's like, we'll see. And then, uh, yeah, uh, there was some producer issue. Like, I guess the producer from the uh, 2000 version that was uh, uh, almost came to be that was seen in Las Lamanca wanted some claim of the film. And he was going to keep it away from being ever screened in theaters or seen ever. And it was like, see, we told you, you, you can't. This movie's cursed. And so uh, people were not exactly sure, even though it was finished, like what this movie actually come to pass was this film really like never destined to be seen in theaters and uh it was announced i guess a couple months ago that fathom events was going to show it in the united states for apparently one day only at least for now uh and that was this wednesday and i uh cleared my schedule to make sure that i could see this film because like i need to figure out what happened here (laughs) like i just need to see this thing to finally you know have some closure like harry gilliam like i just need to know what this film is uh, and ultimately, you know, as you're watching the film, it's apparent that I think 30 years can weigh down on a man. I think uh, things that were kind of a lot more lively and uh, fresh in his mind are now like clearly 30 years older. And even though we're seeing it for the first time, you can kind of tell that in Terry Gilliam's mind, he's just like, I just kind of want this thing finished. So some things don't come out quite as uh, invigorated, I think, as they were intended to be, even though this film, I would definitely say, is one of the more inspired of uh, Gilliam's recent works, certainly in the 21st century. Uh, but uh, as a film, just how is it itself? Um, I think it's a good film. I think ultimately, like I said in my review, I think there are certainly better versions of this film that could have been made. There's certainly a masterpiece of this story that could have been done. But just looking at it as a film where I think its greatest reward is that it's finished, uh, I think it holds up on its own merits. Um, I think the performances are strong. Uh, Adam Driver is good. And I think Jonathan Price in particular is fantastic in this film as the uh, Fox uh, um, Don Quixote, the man who believes he is Don Quixote. Uh, it, there's um, definitely a personal element to this film where it's clear that if you, as you watch this film, it's definitely a film about the artistic process and about – Uh, how, uh, you know, you kind of have to be a little mad to be in this business and also how people can basically use and sometimes abuse mentally ill people in the Hollywood or filmmaking system. And also just that creative drive, like that desire to make that film, uh, that that vision in your mind, even amid all the odds. It's very much funneled into the story or it's channeled in this film. And I think all those elements do ultimately inform the films in a lot of ways. I, I do think that... By the time you get to the end and you really just process like this film, it's done. Like it's really here and you just watched it. The emotional elements, I think, are a little more resonant in that regard. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's not perfect. I mean, some of the comedy, it could be very hit and miss. It also is very long. I think it's like almost two and a half hours. And you can feel that length, especially because uh, I didn't really get into the plot of the film. But a lot of it is spent with Adam Driver and Jonathan Price's Don Quixote just kind of wandering the desert, uh, turning themselves crazy, essentially. So uh, you can feel the length of this one. And I do think just that, I I mean, there's certainly a better version of this film that could have been done, like I said earlier. But I don't really want to focus on the negatives. I just think, as a film, I am a Gilliam fan. I wasn't crazy about all of his films, but I do tend to like them more than I don't. And you can really see uh, how much passion and care was put into this film, even though it is a little watered down compared to what we could have gotten. And uh, I do think, you know, it's worth a watch. Especially if you're a Gilliam fan, it is good to have that, that sense of knowing like, oh, uh, is this this is what it was like, this is what he wanted to make. And I think even having seen the film, it feels a little surreal in a sense of like, 
did I really see this film? Like, did I actually finally see the man who killed Don Quixote? And I think that surrealism does add to the film in many ways. I do think ultimately, if you want to know what the film could have been, uh, and you are a Gilliam fan and you just kind of want that closure, it's worth a watch. So I give it uh, a firm B. All right. Yeah. Brazil's one of my all-time faves for sure. And I like most of Gilliam's stuff. I like 12 Monkeys and Time Bandits, but... Yeah, as far as this one goes, I, I'm waiting on it because I not because I would see this if I had the time, but I've just been so behind and it's not playing in a lot of theaters around here. So I'll probably have to wait to catch this as a rental or streaming, but there's no way I'm not watching this, right? Like how could yeah. I, I'd much prefer to see it in theaters though. Um, but my thing is that it's so long. It's like over two hours. And I know some of the reviews were kind of saying that it overstays its welcome. So I kind of, that's why I kind of want to see it at home. Cause maybe that's, that's the kind of experience where I can maybe sit with it and not feel kind of trapped by it, if that makes any sense. But as far as well, other critics go, yeah, I mean, I know, I know the theater experience is really important, but there's just so no, much no, stuff coming I out mean, right now. I, I don't think it's that wasn't exactly where I was going. I was going to say that that feeling of like being trapped and kind of like uh, in the thick of it, I think, does add to its experience. But I understand what you're saying. OK, which, you know, obviously I'm just echoing, not echoing. I'm just repeating what I've heard. So I, I really don't know for sure. No, I know. Yeah. But uh, yeah. the film right now, it, it is kind of looking like it's a bit mixed with most critics. It's got a 62 percent on Rotten Tomatoes. And, you know, it's it's definitely not a film that's designed to take the box office by storm. But yeah, well. I mean, there's like, I don't know if there's any way that this movie could have lived up to its full expectations, right? right. Like, no matter what, like it was going to, it was bound to disappoint somebody. So I try to take right. that into account. Like I said, far from a perfect film, but I do think for what it is, just studying it, and also I think you have to take its history into account, I think it works ultimately. So I do think you should check it out if you get a chance. I could not agree more. Okay, so we're going to finish this show out with one more review. A review that we I was going to wait to talk about this until next week, but because we're doing our summer movie preview, I uh, just want to kind of get this out of the way, mainly because it's not a film I'm excited about and I don't really want to talk about much, but Breakthrough, which <laughs> might win the award for most WTF movie trailer that everyone apparently has seen if you've gone to the movies you've probably seen the trailer for breakthrough and like if you've seen a movie like in the last six months but Uh, i'm pure i haven't seen it you haven't seen this trailer interesting i wonder am i am i not pure am i pure or more or on let me say it one more time am i unpure for not seeing this trailer (laughs) impure i think is the word but uh yeah sorry impure it's not a pure flicks movie um, surprisingly uh, enough, the Pureflix movie in theaters right now is Unplanned, which is a grotesque abomination of a film from uh, my friend. parents. Saw that. Should we get them on to oh, hear their mini review? <laughs> uh, I don't know about that one. That, that's that's yeah, of course the like the the anti-choice propaganda, you know, anti-abortion film. So yeah. Breakthrough is a faith-based film that actually was made. It's it's one of the last films that'll ever come out from Fox 2000 Pictures, uh, which is going to be shuttered by Disney now that they've acquired 20th Century Fox. So watching this film, it was it was kind of a it's kind of bizarre to to see this and and to sort of sit in the audience and you, you're watching one of their last films, and this is the studio that brought us films like we said, The Hate You Give earlier and Love Simon just a year ago which was such a felt like such a genuine teen dramedy that felt rooted in the authentic teen experience in a high school that felt so realized breakthrough takes is based on a true story uh, it's about a, a young adopted Guatemalan teenager named John Smith who you know 
he's dealing he's dealing with these problems because He's Guatemalan. He lives in Missouri. He was brought here by a baby, and his parents are white. And he just—he's just struggling with his his Latin X identity, and you know, being in a super—it's a super white school. But it's one of those schools where, of course, like the camera, you know, treats the movie like a diversity brochure, where they they intentionally put in characters that sort of make you feel like, oh, we're in like kind of a post racial, you know, environment, and. Look, I don't know how true that is to what this school actually was or anything like that. But as somebody who went to a school that did have like token diversity, but was extremely white in every other way possible, I I, I was definitely the target audience maybe because I, I went to a Christian middle and high school. I dealt with something like the events in this movie where John Smith has an unfortunate accident. He falls through a lice, an icy lake. And his brain is without oxygen for 15 minutes, and all the doctors are like, "He's not going to survive." They they pronounce they're about to pronounce him dead. They basically do, but through prayer, uh, his mother, you know, oh, hell apparently yeah. brings him back to life. <laughs> Say again? <laughs> now I was just like, "Oh hell yeah!" <laughs> oh, prayer. Yes, yes. <laughs> Which it, it, the fascinating the thing. Superpower. So I wrote a review for this for the young folks. And in my review, I, I go I go full on with like, look, I've been through this. I was in a Christian high school. One of my classmates was in a, a car accident where they were about to pronounce her dead. They said that she'd never recover. They thought she was going to die overnight. And we prayed for her and she survived. And it felt like such a miracle. And and I understand I understand the appeal of this movie and what it's trying to do. It's it's trying to make you believe in miracles. It's trying to make you believe in God and faith and things like that. And to me, it absolutely drops the ball in what you can do with a story like that to actually genuinely inspire people. Because, you know, I said in my review, it just, it, it doesn't feel like a film that really cares about evangelizing more so than sort of making people who believe in God feel better about themselves during a time when I feel like you probably feel great about yourself enough as it is, to be honest. And, and this idea that, this, the things that this film tries to bring about, I just felt ring so false, and, and I'm so bummed out, you know, because th- this is from Roxanne Dawson. She she was one of the, she was a character in uh, Star Trek Voyager, and you know she's directed a few episodes of some really great TV shows, and you know there, there's there's a lot of great talent going on here. I, I know that uh, it was written by Grant Neoporte, who uh, is like a Christian author. He he did the the novel uh, The Impossible, and it's based on sort of a an adapted. I don't know if it was a book at one point. I think it was actually. And Joyce Smith, the the mother in this film, who's played by Chrissy Metz, uh, who I've never seen This Is Us, but I've heard it's a great, great show. She's really great in that. And uh, Topher Grace, Mike Coulter, Josh Lucas. I mean, this this cast is really good. Um, and and I have to say, Topher Grace as a pastor is perfect casting. But sorry, you're going to say... No, I was gonna say. So he is a pastor. That's a weird uh, turnaround from Black Klansman last year. Black Klansman, and of course uh, Eric Foreman from that '70s show. But he. No, but I mean, like his last two roles. I know, I know from, what you mean. But uh, David Duke to a pastor. Right, right. Okay. Which you know we could go all day on that. But he, he, there, there is a scene, and, and I've said this to so many people. If you watch the trailer for Breakthrough, it's kind of wild. Like things happen in it that feel kind of alien. Like like aliens made a movie about like the human experience. And I'm not happy to say that the trailer was legitimately holding back on how bizarre this film is and its performances and it's, it's writing. And uh, cause a lot of it is just characters standing around 
being like, there's no way he'll survive. Science says it's impossible. And Joy Smith, you know, warrior of the ages is like, my faith says it is possible. And that's all this movie really is. It's just sort of like, you just need to have more faith. And it has no interest in like faith in what though? And and why? And, you know, it sort of lampshades ideas of like, why, why should God save this kid? But, you know, he doesn't save this other person. We prayed for this person. This, this entire, you know, country is going through a civil war. People are dying and we're supposed to care more about this kid. And, and I'm like, yeah, these are really good questions. Um, but then the film casts those questions in a mean light. It, it, it basically is like, it, it frames them as like cruel. Like you shouldn't be asking questions like that. And there's this other thread Uh, where Mike Coulter is like a token atheist and that really just does not go in the places that it sets up. But sorry, what were you going to say? No, I was going to say, I, th- I thought you were going to imply it, like they were saying, like you should have prayed harder or something. No, but no, it, does, not- it doesn't do that. It doesn't, it doesn't go that far, but it does sort of just say, Oh, that's just life's greatest mysteries. What you going to do about it? And I'm like, you're a movie. You're supposed to have some sort of commentary on the themes that you bring up. And this film not to be because basketball is a big thing. It drops the ball, and I, I don't care about that pun. I, I really think that it's that's the case, and it's so it's strange. Stephen, Stephen Curry uh, helped produce this film. He obviously was very passionate about it because the kid in this is a big fan of his, and I'm a big fan of Steph Curry. And uh, you know, they just beat the Clippers last night, and congratulations, whatever. I but, don't. But okay. <laughs> right. Well, you know, whatever. So all I really have to say beyond this film is that I just think that it's. It has it serves no purpose except to to make you feel good about yourself if you're already a Christian, and I don't think it does it in any sort of challenging, insightful way. And I, I think it's the answer to people who watched First Reformed and were like, "I don't want to think about that," you know, like I don't want to actually have a deep discussion about Christianity and religion and and political issues and things like that. I just want to watch a movie where something really nice happens. And that's really what this is. And I have no interest in it. I was the only critic at this screening and I can kind of see why. I just think that people have at this point with faith-based films, we it's not that we're expecting them to sort of get better. Um, and in fact, you know, this, this has a better Rotten Tomato score than usual. Uh, I think because a lot of people... They, they sort of like shop this around to smaller websites uh, to sort of like have a better Rotten Tomato score than some of the other faith-based yeah. Pure Flix films have uh, had. It has a better Rotten Tomato score than Hellboy, so God wins this one. <laughs> God wins this round, yes. But uh, <laughs> yeah, but for a film that's nearly two hours that for me is so symbolic of Disney sort of like taking over a film studio known for more aversive movies – uh, I, I definitely was disappointed with Breakthrough, and like I said in my review, it's anything but true to its own name. It really isn't a breakthrough of any sort. I don't think pe- people are going to watch this, and their breakthrough is going to be sort of like, yeah, that thing I believe in is right. And like to me, if that's all a movie does is confirm your bias, then to me, that's worthless. Watch something that actually makes you reconsider things that you've held true your whole life, because if you do that, I think you're going you're actually going to capture into what inspiring films can be. A film that challenges your thoughts can confirm your bias too and strengthen the the worldview that you have. It's not that you have to change your mind every time you watch a film, but my gosh, this to me is just so lazy to sort of make a film all about how great you think your your story is. And and I'm not disparaging the the real people in these events. I think that what they went through was very difficult. 
And I really just put this on the storytellers who translate this because they could have done it in a much better fashion, I think, and in a way that uh, is both faithful, no pun intended, to the real life events, but also faithful to what cinema is about and you know what people can really take away from it in a way that will actually do something meaningful for their lives too. So that is Breakthrough. I'm not a fan. Um, and I give it a, I don't even know what I'm going to grade this, a D plus. So that's Breakthrough. Yeah, I mean, I should say I, I I made some jokes, but I don't mean to make light of people who are religious who are listening to the show or even try to make light of the the situation because, like you said, I'm sure it was very difficult. But I I, I think like you're saying, I mean, like there are films I've seen the uh, these past couple of years that have tackled religion in a way that really affected me, like The Tree of Life or like you said, First Reformed. And this one just sounds like it's kind of pandering to the crowd that it's intended for. Which if they get something out of it, that's fine. But yeah, I don't think I'm gonna end up seeing this one anytime soon yeah pandering is the right word it's like the main interest is in selling tickets and making money where that just rings very strange to me if like this is a this is a true story so like why i don't know it it, it feels really weird to me that they're like so soon after these events happen because this happened in 2015 it's like well we got to make a movie and it's got to pander and it's got to make a ton of money and i was like well isn't the point of this story of like you know something so opposite. So I don't know. That just really rang false to me, but that's breakthrough enough said about that one. The better, uh, next week it, we're going to be doing our summer movie preview. Hopefully we'll be, we might be able to squeeze in a little bit of talk around curse of La Llorona. I know Sam Noland is going to be seeing that film and, uh, he's going to be writing a review on cinemaholics.com. Don't forget to check out cinemaholics.com. If you want to keep up with any of our reviews throughout the week, and uh, we promise at some point we're going to be talking about Barry season two. That could be next week, maybe the week after. <laughs> it's still going. I mean, it's we, it's not like we have to like, you know, we, we could still watch a few more episodes of it before we have, a, you know, fully formed opinions, I'm sure. But yeah, that'll do it this week. Don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or rating um, on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you can do that for a podcast and subscribe, of course. Hang out with us on Facebook, Twitter, email us, cinemahawkspodcast.gmail.com. All the links, everything we talked about are in the show notes. And with that, we'll see you next week. From the internet, California, I am John Agroni. And from the internet, Pennsylvania, I'm Lashton. See you next time.